Book genres are so 20th century. No, 19th century. They made sense when each book needed to be placed on a physical shelf so people could find similar titles. But what if you want to find a vampire romance, a post-apocalyptic comedy, a Western mystery where the main character is an android, a World War II adventure with magic, or a story based around a character of any race or religion or gender, set in any time or any place you choose. Scribble now brings searching for books into the 21st century, even if you're looking for one set in the 17th. Find the books you'll love by selecting the story elements that matter to you at scribble.com. You'll never look for books the same way again. Search by story elements only at scribble.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-L dot com. Hello, my name is George Perez, and you're listening to Chapter 4 of Seventh Son, Book 2. Seventh Son, Book 2, Deceit. A podcast novel written by J.C. Hutchins. Read by the author. For more information about this novel, please visit www.jchutchins.net This is Mick Bradley, Chris Miller, and K.J. Johnson from the House of the Harping Monkey with The Story So Far. In the last chapter, the mystery deepened as John, Jack, Kilroy 2.0, and Jonathan began to decode the messages left by the ten Nepth Charge victims in Arkansas. Jonathan realized that the glyph stamped on the dead men's necklaces provided a critical clue in decrypting their meaning. Using letters hidden in the glyph, the clones deciphered such inexplicable phrases as Prime Time and Find the A in Maine. John and the others properly ordered these bizarre messages and realized the sequence was based on the birth order of the clones themselves. Despite Jonathan's protests, it became clear that the clones would split into two groups, one heading north, the other south. As the chapter came to a close, General Hill announced the impending arrival of Father Thomas, Dr. Mike, Dania Sheridan, and the rest of the Los Angeles rescue team. And now, Seventh Son, Deceit. Chapter 5 John pushed open the doors to the common room and stepped out into the hall. Kilroy 2.0, Jack, Jonathan, and Hugh Sheridan followed him. Corporal Stone was waiting for them. You sure do get around, John said, smiling at the guard. Well, somebody's got to keep an eye on you, Stone replied. So where are we going and what do you know? We're getting some fresh air, Stone said, motioning the group to follow him down the hallway. They made a left instead of a right at the first T-junction in the opposite direction of the elevator, which meant wherever they were going, the clones hadn't seen it before. We're heading to the welcoming platform, Stone explained. It's topside, just above the complex here. We'll take the access lift up to the ground level and wait for the chopper. It'll land nearby. 
John gave the soldier a once-over as they walked. A strangely shaped pistol hung from Stone's belt. Where's the M16? John asked him. It's much more theatrical than whatever you've got there. Stone smiled. The facial expression still looked out of place on him. The 16's a lot more lethal, I'll tell you that. But one dart in this pistol will knock you out cold for at least three hours. Let me put it this way. The general doesn't want you to run. If you try, you won't get far. I'm an awfully good shot. Hill doesn't trust us, Jack said, walking behind them. Can't say one way or another, Stone replied. I'm just putting the thought on your mental radars. Consider it some friendly off-the-record advice from one surly motherfucker. Chalk it up to your pal John here. He's one of the right. I was just joking about the whole surly motherfucker bit, John said. No, you weren't, Stone said as he guided them down another hallway. I am surly. It becomes me. As John laughed, Jonathan matched his stride. What were you doing when you were down there? He asked. John shrugged, learning government secrets and making friends, apparently. They came to another T-junction and made another left. The walls, floors, and ceiling were becoming less institutional as they walked farther and farther from the core of the facility. The wall paint became a warm shade of pink. The floor tiles were burgundy, more lights from above. The Star Trek sliding doors gave way to dark wooden traditional doors with gold-colored doorknobs. Very nice, Kilroy 2.0 said. Very keeping up with the Joneses. So I guess we're getting closer to the front door, Jack murmured. They turned a final corner and came face to face with another massive door, much larger than the one that restricted access to the express elevator. A retina scanner was embedded into the wall, identical to the one the clones had seen before. A dozen winter coats hung by hooks by the door. Stone nodded at the coats, and they soon began to bundle up. The soldier put his face up to the retina device. It scanned his eye, and the door opened with a mechanical groan. Just beyond was a rectangular compartment at least 30 feet by 20 feet. Go on in, Stone said. The six men filed into the compartment. John looked up. If there was a ceiling, he couldn't see it. Vertical rows of pale lights were built into the four metal walls. Each light was separated by about six feet of space. The lights went up and up, and then nothing. Complete darkness. The mammoth elevator door closed, sealing them inside. A subterranean tremor vibrated through the floor for an instant, and then the noise of pistons and motors filled the cabin. The floor slowly moved upward, passing the first row of lights. Then the next. Then the next. All of the clones were staring upward now, at the non-ceiling. The wall lights slid down toward them, engulfed them in their fluorescent glow, then passed beneath them. Where's the top? Jonathan asked, squinting his eyes at the darkness above. Another row of lights sunk toward them. Just be patient, Stone said. The last of the lights swept past, leaving them in complete darkness. The platform continued its ascent. Kilroy began whistling the theme to The X-Files. I always loved this next part, Hugh Sheridan said. John could hear a grin in the old man's voice. A thunderclap suddenly filled the cabin, and the darkness split in half. 
A rush of surreal blue light engulfed the cabin from above, and just beyond that, the sound of helicopter rotors. November air blasted around them. John took in a deep breath. The night stars glimmered above them, far away and dim. It's a blast door, Stone explained over the noise. As the platform continued its ascent, John took note of the thickness of the blast door, which had now receded into the walls. At least three feet thick. And then he turned his attention to the scene that was rising to greet them all. The lift stopped moving and became level with an outdoor concrete platform that surrounded the elevator on all sides. Four small floodlights blasted the platform in a pale blue glare. Near one of these lights was another retina scanner, presumably used to allow outsiders inside. Before them was a seemingly endless snow-covered field, illuminated only by a white spotlight of a helicopter which had landed several hundred yards away. General Hill was down by the chopper, assisting the rescue team emerging from the hold. Kleinman stood nearby with two gurneys and two security officers. We stay here, Stone shouted to them. Them's the rules. No one runs, got it? The clones nodded. Hugh Sheridan tried to light a cigarette without success. The four remaining Seven Sun soldiers who had gone off to California stepped out of the helicopter. One of them was placed immediately onto one of the gurneys. The man's right leg was covered in blood-soaked bandages. Kleiman looked him over and nodded as one of the soldiers gave his report. And then Father Thomas stepped out. Then Dr. Mike, his arm in a makeshift sling. And finally, It's Mom, Jonathan said, grabbing John's arm. There she is. Oh my God, it's her. She's alive. John squinted through the lights and watched Thomas and Dr. Mike help Dania Sheridan out of the helicopter. Kleinman hugged her at once, then motioned to the remaining gurney. Dania shook her head resolutely, waving it away. She looked at General Hill, extended her left hand. He shook it. John noticed her right hand was covered in gauze. The bastard had cut off his own mother's fingers. The survivors walked away from the helicopter toward the platform. The chopper's engines whined at a higher pitch, and it slowly rose from the ground into the sky. As it soared toward the horizon, the taka-taka-taka cadence of its rotors grew more and more faint. And then Father Thomas, Dr. Mike, and Dania Sheridan were standing before them, the harsh blue floodlights enhancing the bruises, exhaustion, and streaks of blood on their faces. They looked ghoulish, brought back from the dead. Behind them stood General Hill, Kleinman, and the rest of the rescue team. Welcome back, John said. He gazed at his mother. The tears came as he shivered and smiled. He couldn't help it. He just couldn't help it. John hugged his mother. She was shorter than he remembered. The harsh light around them highlighted her sunken face, the new wrinkles around her eyes, her mouth. Her hair was silver now, not the auburn from his youth. The irony that those memories were not his, and that this was the first time he had actually seen her in his lifetime, did not escape him. But it didn't matter, not right now. She hugged him back. Are you John, the seventh? She asked. He nodded, smiling. She brought up her left hand and wiped away his tears. It was a simple gesture, done with love. 
I thought so, she said. It was the hair. The young rebel's grown up. Are you happy? John nodded. I got a girl, Mom, and a cat, and a decent job. He didn't know why he said that. I'm still playing the guitar, too. I'm pretty good. She smiled. Her face, so familiar, exploded into cross-hatchings of wrinkles. It suited her. That's terrific, she said. Play me something when this is all over. I will. She embraced him again and shuffled over to Jonathan. He was staring at her with an expression of disbelief, as if he were seeing a ghost. Which, in a way, he was. Don't be scared, she said, smiling gently. Who are you? Jonathan, he replied. Still at the United Nations? she asked. He nodded slowly. That's excellent. And how is Patricia? Jonathan blushed and smiled. She's good. She's a professional photographer. She was always so creative, Dania said. She hugged Jonathan. I'm so sorry we had to pull you, well, Alpha, away from her. But it's amazing that you two found each other after all those years. To Jonathan's right, Kilroy 2.0 began to nod furiously. I knew it, he said. You married Patricia Ross, Peppermint Patty, my first kiss at the homecoming game, freshman year. He turned to the other clones. Our first kiss. My first kiss, Jonathan said. He looked embarrassed. Behind Daniel Sheridan, Mike grinned. <laughs> well, this is awkward, he said. Thank God little Johnny Alpha didn't go all the way that night, or this moment would be extremely uncomfortable. Too late, John groaned. Dania Sheridan waved her bandaged hand, clearing the air. It's nothing to worry about, Jonathan, she said. She's a lovely woman. I thought everyone knew. I'm sorry. Jonathan forced a smile. It's all right, he said. We're happy and good for each other. I'm... I, I'm glad you approve. Oh, you bet, she replied as she stepped over to Kilroy 2.0. She looked at him from top to bottom. She leaned close, not touching him, but close enough to whisper. Are you still here, Kilroy? The hacker eyed her suspiciously. Yes. Are you still everywhere? He grinned. <laughs> yes, yes. That means things are normal for you. I'm glad to hear it, she said, smiling at him. How's your daughter? Stephanie is well, Kilroy replied. He noticed the stunned gazes of his fellow clones and turned away. He gazed off into the dark field, still smiling. At least, I hope she is. I haven't seen her. Do you ever speak with her? Kilroy's smile was fading. No, she's still with her mother. They won't let me see her. They say I have to get better first. Dania Sheridan cocked her head gently to one side. Are you willing to do that, Johnny? Get better? Kilroy's eyes flitted from the field to her eyes. That's not my name anymore, he said. This is what I am. I'm not broken. I don't need to be fixed. I see. 
she looked into the hacker's eyes and smiled. It's good to see you, Kilroy. She stepped over to Jack and grinned. How old are the twins now? She asked him. How does it feel to violate every medical and ethical code that's ever been put to paper? Jack replied. What? I'm sorry, Dania said. She turned away, tears welling up in her eyes. I wasn't expecting... I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. No, Jack said. His voice was low and cold. The person you owe the biggest apology to is out there killing presidents and clones and stealing technology that can put his sick soul inside the head of just about anybody. Back off, General Hill commanded. The general stepped up from behind Dania Sheridan and put his body between she and Jack. Dania was sobbing openly now. Hill glared into the clone's eyes. She's been through enough, Jack. Don't steamroll her now. Not now, son. Jack turned away, storming past Hugh Sheridan. Sheridan blew a lungful of smoke into the air and made a mock salute to Hill. Hey, Dania, he called. You shut up, Hill said. He put an arm around Dania Sheridan's shoulder and turned to the others. Get on the platform. We're going down. Now. As the group of clones and soldiers stepped past the retina scanner onto the elevator platform, Mike made his way over to John. Some homecoming, he muttered. John sighed. And it started so well, too. Clones these days, Mike said. Never appreciative, always with the attitude. John glanced at Mike's arm. It had been bandaged and placed in an awkward field sling. How are you? He asked. How do I look? Like refried shit. Yep, that sounds about right, Mike said. He turned his attention to Thomas, who'd stepped up to them. Hey, John said. Both of you. I'm sorry about Michael. Thanks, Mike said. He died fighting, Thomas said, staring into the night sky. They all died fighting. After the lift had completed its descent into the compound, General Hill cleared his throat and began barking orders. Listen up, he bellowed. This is how it's going to work. The able-bodied security personnel who've returned from the mission will come with me to the Ops Control Center for immediate debriefing. I want to know everything, and I want to know it now, so if you're not wounded, come with me. The betas will return to the common room. Corporal Stone will escort Hugh Sheridan to his quarters. However, Mike... Corporal Lockwood and Dania Sheridan will head directly to the infirmary level with Dr. Kleiman for immediate treatment. They'll stay there overnight. Mike nudged John with his elbow. I knew it was more than just a frickin' flesh wound, he whispered. The group began to separate itself into three subgroups. The three bruised, demoralized soldiers from the rescue party, Kleinman, Lockwood, and Dania Sheridan, and the clones. Hugh Sheridan stood off to the side next to Corporal Stone. Kleinman waved to Mike, encouraging him to join the other infirmary bound. I need to look at that arm, Kleinman said. We'll release you in the morning. Lockwood and Dania Sheridan will require longer stays, I'm afraid. Just keep the meds coming, Mike said as he walked over to the old man. General Hill waited to speak until Dr. Mike had met up with Kleinman. 
It's been one hell of a day. Hill called to the groups. We're closer to John Alpha than we were this time yesterday. We've achieved the goal of our rescue mission and brought back an ally. We lost a lot of good men in the process. I knew these men, as did you. They were your friends, your colleagues, your brothers. A moment of silence to honor them isn't enough. Not nearly enough. But it's all we have time for right now. Hill bowed his head. To the fallen. Eventually, the groups went their respective ways, down their respective halls, to the infirmary, the common room, ops. No one said much. There was nothing to say. Chapter 6 The phone on the bedside table was ringing. A.U. Rookman opened his eyes and glanced into the darkness, taking in what he could see. This mammoth room he was in, where was it? Gilded ceiling trim, dark curtains, oriental rugs, a dark chandelier that hung like a giant's teardrop. This was a museum. That slippery feeling of a feared swept through Rookman's groggy mind, pulsing in his belly. I'm his supper. Daddy's gonna give me a whoopin', just like the time I fell asleep in the barn and came home past sunset. I'll get the belt for sure. Maybe the switch. A museum. Why am I in a museum? Why am I in a museum? The phone rang again. Rookman gazed at it uncomprehendingly, as if it were an alien artifact. His eyes glanced at the clock beside the telephone. It's four in the morning. Oh my God, he's gonna kill me. Gonna kill. The phone rang again, and suddenly things began to crystallize. Rookman helped it along. He stared at the phone for another moment, trying to pull his mind together. It was becoming harder and harder to force the swirling chronology into some kind of order. Goddamned Alzheimer's. His mind kept wanting to wander back to childhood, to his first marriage, his first oil pump. His mind was giving up. He didn't want to learn new things anymore. It just wanted to go back, go back, wander among the dark meadows of memory. I don't give a piss about those things right now, he thought. Present tense, present tense, goddammit. Now, now, now. He picked up the phone receiver. Rookman, he said. Very special delivery, a woman's voice said into his ear. Funny accent. She sounded like a limey. We're about five minutes from the front gate, A.U. Do be a dear and let us in. You're goddamned late, Rookman said as he switched on the bedside lamp. He stole another glance at the clock. Do you have any idea what time it is? You remember to send the help and the wife away, the woman said, ignoring him. Tell me the place is empty. Just who in the hell do you think I am? Rookman snarled. He grabbed at the robe hanging on one of his bed's massive posts. I'm not stupid. Of course they're gone. I pitched a fit and kicked everyone out. It's not the first time, and it won't be the last. You're right about that much, the woman cooed. Be ready when we get to the gate. We don't want this to take any longer than we have to. The line went dead in his ear. Rookman felt the blood rising to his cheeks. He resisted the urge to slam the phone back into its cradle. Instead, he slipped his thin arms through the rope sleeves and reached for the walker by his bed. 
Leaning into it for balance, he shuffled across the room to the attached bathroom. He passed his computer desk and scowled. God damn this punk, he thought. Spent my whole life making sure no one speaks to me that way, and this little shit thinks he can kick me around like a pup. He made it into the bathroom, pissed, washed his face and fished his teeth out of the crystal goblet resting on the sink. He slipped the dentures into his mouth and grinned into the mirror. Then it was back to the bedroom and into the motorized wheelchair. It was waiting for him like an open mouth, ready to devour his mobility, his independence. He could take the elevator to the ground floor and meet the bitch at the door, but why? Piss on her. Let her earn her keep. Let her come to him. He signed the checks and she knew it. They all knew it. Let's keep the master-slave relationship secure, shall we? He piloted the wheelchair to a video intercom system that had been built into the wall years ago. There were too many buttons on the damn thing. He used to know what most of them did. Now he could only remember the significance of a few. But the screen was set to the feed coming from the video camera at his mansion's front gate, and he knew which button opened that. And he knew which button unlocked the front door of the mansion. Tonight, those two buttons were all he needed. He could relearn what the others did. Hell, he could learn whatever he wanted. After tonight. He watched the tiny monitor. A glimmer of light lanced across the cobblestone driveway, the headlights of an oncoming car. And then a comically large SUV pulled into frame. Even now, Rookman smiled and nodded as he thought of the vehicle's gas mileage. The tented driver's side window lowered, and Rookman saw the woman's face. Dark skin, black hair. A vision. An angel. His savior. Are you ready, A.U.? The woman said through the intercom. Rookman licked his lips, nodded, and opened the front gate. Rookman stared in silent awe as she strode into the bedroom, alone. Clothes were casual. Khakis, white top, lightweight blue sweater, sneakers, backpack. But there was a killer body beneath all that. She couldn't be more than 25. Tall. And a rack that'd give Dolly Parton a run for her coat of many colors. Were they real? If he were younger, he would have been able to find out. Oh, to be younger... Get your mind out of the gutter, Rookman, she said, rolling her eyes. I've been objectified for the past few days, and frankly, I don't know how women put up with it. We are some dirty-minded pigs. I have a whole new appreciation for the greater sex. The woman extended her hand. My name's Mira Sanja, but my close friends call me John Alpha. Rookman shook Sanja's hand, warily looking into her eyes. Is that really you in there, boy? It works, A.U., she said, smiling wickedly. It's me. It'll bake your noodle at first, but it's an amazing experience, really. I can tell you the conversations we've had, tell you exactly what I was thinking when I wrote you that letter six years ago. And, thanks to what was in Miss Sanja's brain, I can also tell you what it was like to grow up in India, to watch families burn the dead by the Ganges and what it was like coming to America to study. I can tell you about her first love, the first time she was fucked, how she misses her brothers back home. I am also now fluent in Hindi. Instant anthropology, A.U. A yellow pages for the soul. Let your synapses do the walking. Rookman smiled, his false teeth 
too straight and white to be anything but, glittered. After all this time, he whispered, it's true, all this time, all this time. And money, Sanja Alpha said, lots of money, and I'm certainly appreciative of it. Let us not forget the biggest check of all, the one that you'll be sending to the Caymans. This is it, Rookman, the moment we've been working for. This time tomorrow there'll be a whole new you, and a whole new world for you to play in. She smiled. I'm your fairy godmother, baby. Tonight, all your dreams come true. Rookman nodded ecstatically and laughed. He felt his chest tighten, his lungs doing their best to fill with oxygen, and made an effort to control his breathing. Not the goddamned O2 mask, he thought. Not tonight. Not again. Not ever. <laughs> Let's get to the deed, Rookman wheezed. Where is he? In the hall, with two of my friends, Sanja said. Took us all night to find him on the strip. She took a step closer to the wheelchair and leaned down to face Rookman eye to eye. Here it is, A.U., your second chance. I take care of you tonight, and in exchange you take care of me. The billion in the Caymans, as we agreed, and then the, uh, property arrangement that we've already discussed. And after that... As far as each other is concerned, we never existed. Deal? She extended her hand again. Rookman looked at it, then into her black eyes. Deal with the devil, he thought. I'm not shaking hands with the real you, the geezer said, his voice low. How do I know you'll keep your word? Sanja's lips lifted into a smirk. Don't try to Jew me now, A.U., you understand what we're doing here. You also know I've got a lot more to lose at this point than you do. There's nothing to gain from screwing you over. Stop being a pussy and shake my hand. Rookman's face erupted into an impish grin. Can't pull the wool over your eyes, he said. They shook on it. Sanja Alpha stood up and began walking across the room toward the door. So, she said, she reached the door and wrapped her hand around the golden doorknob. Let's bring in your son, shall we? Rookman nodded slowly. Oh, yes, the old man said. I'd like to give him a piece of my mind. By most accounts, Lionel Rookman was what the polite well-to-do called a cad. At the age of 41, he had ripped through three marriages, the considerable trust fund his father had created for him, and far too many rehab clinics for the press to count. The man had mooched off his father's fortune and fame throughout his whole life, jaunts to Palm Beach, breeze-throughs in the Hamptons, night after night in Vegas, Palm Springs, Beverly Hills, Aspen. He wielded his name like a sword. The introduction he had perfected long ago, Lionel Rookman, of the Texas Rookmans, gained him instant access into the exclusive restaurants, hotels, and clubs owned by those in the know. These places tolerated his social ineptitude, egotism, indiscretion, and self-destructive, and often just plain destructive, behavior for one good reason. Lionel Rookman threw money around as if it were a flame. Technically, it was his father's money, and yes, yes, of course, those in the know were aware of that, but it still spent the same. 
The well-to-do called him a cad. Folks from the other half would have called him a spoiled daddy's boy. Sanja Alpha had accessed his credit card records and tracked him to Vegas. She and the Devlins had been three steps behind him for much of the night. Not that Lionel Rookman was aware he was being followed. It finally happened on the way back to the hotel from the Tropicana. The two Devlins had grabbed him, they were rock-solid men, football player stock, and shoved him off the sidewalk and into the back seat of a screeching excursion SUV. Lionel had tried to scream something, something like, Do you know who you're fucking with? Or, Do you know who my father is? But one of the men had stuffed a soggy handkerchief over his mouth, and the last thought Lionel had had for several hours was a panicked realization that he wasn't being robbed. He was being kidnapped. And now here he was, standing in his father's palatial bedroom, his clothes a mess, his hair a tussled mop, surrounded by his kidnappers, and staring into the eyes of his daddy. One of the men standing beside him grabbed the strip of duct tape covering Lionel's mouth and ripped it off with one deft tug. What in the hell's going on, Dad? He panted. What? Shut up, boy! A.U. Rookman barked. He glanced at the monolithic men standing nearby. If he says another word, hush him up. His eyes slid back to his son. You'd be well advised to keep that hole of yours shut. For your own good and for mine. Just listen to me. The elder Rookman piloted his wheelchair across the room and stopped several feet away from his son. Sanja Alpha stood behind him. You are a blight on this family, Lionel, A.U. Rookman said. I've been tolerant. I've been patient. I've bailed you out of jail, watched you snort and drink your life away. You have sabotaged every good thing that's ever come your way. I don't want another sermon, Dad, Lionel muttered. I... One of the hulks punched Lionel in the stomach. The son fell to his knees, gasping for breath. Careful, Devlins. Mira Sanja called, grinning. She pulled off her backpack and unzipped the largest compartment. Don't break the goods before delivery. <laughs> Don't understand, Lionel whispered. You will, A.U. Rookman said. You're a waste, boy, a parasite. You've blown every chance I've ever given you. You've given me nothing in return. I got the cancer. I got the old timers. I'm falling apart. Not once did you visit me. Not once did you call me. Not once did you. I can do whatever I want, Lionel snapped. He clutched his stomach as if his guts were going to spurt out of his navel. It's my life. Not anymore, Rookman replied. Years ago, I took your name out of my will because of the way you were running and ruining your life. But I've put you back in, boy. You're the frog prince. When I die, you get everything. The company, the power to run it, the money. The old man smiled. Want to know why? Lionel Rookman stared up at his father. He said nothing. <laughs> You're the prodigal son, Rookman said, grinning. You're coming back into the fold. You're going to take care of me, boy, and I'm going to live vicariously through you, in a matter of speaking. Lionel shook his head. What are you talking about? Pick him up, Rookman ordered, and hold him. As the hulks yanked Lionel to his feet, Sanja Alpha stepped up to the old man. She held the phone book-sized black DNAC in the crook of one arm. In her other hand were the electrodes. It won't hurt, 
she whispered to A.U. Rookman as she placed the sticky devices to his head. The pattern resembled a crown. This will only take a minute. Lionel was struggling now. What is this? He shrieked. Dad, what is this? Rookman glared at his son. Hush, he said. He turned to the woman. Do it, Alpha. Sanja pressed the button on the device, a button that said, Upload. There was a high-pitched whine from the black box, and then silence. She began removing the electrodes from the old man's head. That's it? Rookman asked. Sanja Alpha smiled wickedly. That's it. The first part, anyway. The recording. It felt strange. Like putting your tongue on a nine-volt. The woman stepped past the wheelchair, toward Lionel. The son's arms were flailing against the men, his body jerking in place. Sanja wasn't concerned. They were easily overpowering him. She looked back at Rookman. The download process is going to be very painful. Good. Let me watch. She placed the first electrode to Lionel Rookman's forehead. Lionel began to scream. And scream. And scream. You've been listening to Seventh Son, Book Two, Deceit. A podcast novel written by J.C. Hutchins. Thanks for listening. Please visit www.jchutchins.net for more information about this novel and about the author. Themed music generously provided by Cell Dweller. Please visit the band's website at celldweller.com and at myspace.com slash celldweller. Graphic elements for website art and album art for this podcast generously created by Magic Torch. Please visit the company's website at magictorch.com. This recording and its contents are copyright 2006 J.C. Hutchins.